Welcome to the 14th webinar in the MJHS Interprofessional Webinar Series. I'm Dr. Russell Portsonoy, the Chief Medical Officer of MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care and the Executive Director of the MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. My disclosures are here, and the topic I'll be addressing today is care of the imminently dying. I have three main aims for this afternoon. First is to describe the phenomenology of far advanced illness and the process by which patients transition to a phase of active dying. Second is to try to provide some information that might be helpful to prognosticate when death is very near. And third is to talk about the types of best practices that would characterize specialist level palliative care at the end of life. So let's start first with the phenomenology. How do patients with life-limiting illness die? One can divide this into two broad uh, two broad approaches or two broad uh, pathways. An acute complication brings on a rapid decline to active dying, or a patient with progressive chronic, chronic illness brings uh, a steady decline toward an active dying phase. Acute complications are very common in patients who are medically frail. Sometimes these complications are an expected part of the medical illness, for example, an exacerbation of heart failure or an exacerbation of COPD, or a patient who uh, stops dialysis and enters into a period of rapid decline thereafter. Sometimes these acute complications that end in a patient's death are not expected. For example, the patient who develops sepsis or has an acute severe hemorrhage, a pulmonary embolism, or a stroke. When an, un when an unexpected uh, life-limiting event, an unexpected acute event that could culminate in the patient's imminent death occurs, it's very important that the clinicians involved understand the medical context. In some cases, that complication might be readily treatable, and the patient's imminent death could be averted, and that may be appropriate in some cases. So that all clinicians who are engaged in specialist palliative care have to have some understanding about the diagnosis and the pathophysiology of the acute event, and the availability of treatments for the complication. When something like this happens, it's also very important that the clinicians involved be prepared. And this is particularly important if the event is unexpected, like sepsis. There may be why questions from the, from the family, and the need to explain how something like this could happen when it wasn't expected becomes an important part of the communication strategy. It may be necessary to revisit goals uh, and decision-making or the advanced care plans that had, been in, that had been put in place. And it's often necessary to deal with the guilt, uh, the guilt that the family may experience for not having time to potentially realize some of the immediate goals that had been uh, developed with the expectation that the patient would survive longer. When a patient has an acute complication and it's clear that it won't be quickly reversible, the clinician needs to change the messaging it may be important to change from uh, a message that it could be weeks or months until the patient dies to a more imminent message that it could be hours or days. And it may be necessary to repeat this frequently until the family clearly understands uh, the closeness of the patient's death. From a broader specialist level palliative care perspective, and I will touch on this in more detail later, the, the clinician involved with a patient with an acute unexpected event that may culminate in death imminently needs to evaluate and understand the medical facts and decisions, review and coordinate care with all the treatment teams, 
assess the patient for any source of distress, physical, emotional, spiritual, any concrete needs the patient may have as the patient is deteriorating with the likely endpoint being death. The need uh, exists to reassess the family caregivers for emotional and psychological and spiritual concerns that may require immediate intervention. The palliative plan of care, which may have been in place for some time, needs to be quickly readdressed, modified, and then communicated to all members of the palliative care team. And communication strategy is very important. As I said before, the necessity of, of reassuring the family that nothing they did brought this on, nothing that the medical team did brought this on, explain to them how events like this happen in the medically frail, what the likely endpoint will be, to establish new goals and expectations and provide support and, and to the extent possible normalize the events and turn this into a period of, of dying that would otherwise be expected. All of that may be important. Now probably as often, we don't have good epidemiology about uh, the relative uh, prevalence of these different pathways to death, but it's a very common occurrence that death occurs after a period of progressive decline. When that occurs, uh, it may, uh, it may uh, appear to evolve over a period that could take sometimes weeks, and, and it's often not appreciated by physicians who usually overestimate prognosis. If the palliative care specialist, the member of the, the team, can recognize that the patient is entering a period of decline that is likely to end with death, it offers a longer period to modify and optimize the palliative plan of care. It's actually a very important point in the disease trajectory for our subspecialty because we are able then, if we can prognosticate accurately and prepare, create a palliative plan of care that is uh, appropriately framed by the likelihood of death in the near future. Now, how does the clinician identify patients who are likely to die very soon, perhaps within days? All the indicators of short survival that have been studied in the literature are subject to error, but there is information uh, in the literature that allows us to develop an action plan. And I want to go through some of the key predictors of this period of relatively short prognosis. This is this is the ability to prognosticate that the, the, the decline that the patient has been experiencing is accelerating and is likely to culminate in death soon. The first indicator uh, is performance status. And performance status uh, reflects the patient's ability to perform physical activities. And there are a variety of indices that have been used for decades, including the Karnofsky performance status scale, the palliative performance scale, and the ECOG scale. Palliative care subspecialists tend to prefer the palliative performance scale, and there have been studies to link the score on this scale with the likelihood of a short prognosis. For example, uh, a study by Harold and colleagues in 2005 evaluated 466 hospice patients and found that a PPS in the range of 30 to 40 was associated with death within one month in 58% of patients, and 80% died within three months. Even a PPS higher in the 50 to 70 range was associated with a 33% likelihood of death within a month and a 69% likelihood of death within three months. In this study, uh, the, the likelihood that the PPS was predictive of death was somewhat more likely in the non-cancer versus the cancer diagnoses and for the patients who were in nursing homes as compared to those who were not. So for those of you who are using the PPS, 
it's this range from 30 to 70, which seems to be most important as a predictor of death in the next weeks or just a few months. And as a patient moves from 70 to 60 to 50, it's probably an important indicator of an accelerating decline likely to culminate in death. Symptoms are also important, and there are a variety of studies during the past two decades that have tried to link the experience of symptoms or very specific physical signs with an increased probability that death would occur relatively soon. Most of these studies have been done in the cancer population. One study, for example, that was done more than a decade ago evaluated a series of symptoms and signs and found that breathlessness, cognitive impairment, dry mouth, dysphagia, anorexia, and weight loss were all uh, highly, like, highly uh, associated with death relatively soon. One easy way to remember this is that patients who experienced progressive worsening in breathing, mentation, and what I've called the oral intake cluster, dry mouth, dysphagia, anorexia, and weight loss, breathing, mentation, and an oral intake cluster, that constellation of symptoms and signs seems highly uh, associated with imminence of death and is relatively easy to follow as patients are under care. There have also been instruments that have been developed and validated in populations with advanced disease, again, usually populations with advanced cancer. For example, the palliative prognostic score uh, looks at the clinical prediction of survival, the Karnofsky performance data scale, and then anorexia, dyspnea, the white blood cell count, and lymphocyte percentage, a combination of a clinical prediction, signs, and laboratory evaluation, which together was statistically associated with a short prognosis. Another uh, validated measure is the palliative prognostic index. This one looked at the palliative performance scale, another measure of performance status, oral intake, edema, breathlessness at rest, and cognitive impairment. And, and this scale also has been associated uh, at certain thresholds with a prognosis that's very short. Now, I, I believe that very few uh, programs clinically have incorporated the PAP and the PPI into routine practice. It's important to know that they do exist, and if it was helpful, you could pull these from the literature and incorporate them into a, a process by which prognostication might be made more, uh, more definitive. But most programs don't use validated measures. Most programs rely on a bedside perspective. And the question might be asked, what would an experienced clinician assess in order to prognosticate death in the near future? Now, as I mentioned before, the first and easiest uh, metric to use is declining performance status. Has the patient been experiencing more time in bed or the chair? Does the patient need more help in ADLs? Is the patient spending more time drowsy or asleep? Second, specific symptoms and signs are useful. And as I mentioned before, the study from 2000 and other more recent studies suggest that dyspnea, cognitive impairment, and this oral intake cluster, including dysphagia and anorexia, those symptoms and signs together uh, represent uh, a group of indicators that uh, prognosis may be very short. So performance status and breathing mentation and the oral intake cluster are clinically useful metrics that can be applied at the bedside by any clinician on the team in an effort to get a better sense of whether the patient's prognosis is short. Now, as I mentioned before, if the palliative 
care specialists can identify that prognosis is short. It's an opportunity to modify the plan of care in a way that could, can, that could potentially coordinate care for the patient and family and provide uh, interventions that can be very useful in helping the patient die in a manner that's safe and dignified and relatively symptom-free and support the family during this uh, end-of-life period. From, a, from the broader perspective, uh, there's a series of clinical imperatives. We need to evaluate and understand the medical facts and the decisions that are being made, if only to be able to explain them to a family that may periodically experience distress as the patient's declining. We need to be able to review and coordinate care with all the treatment teams involved in the care of the patient, to assess the patient for physical, psychological, spiritual, and concrete needs, and also to assess the family caregivers for a similar constellation of sources of distress. All that information together allows review and modification of the palliative plan of care, which can then be communicated more broadly. And meanwhile, the patient's family can be supported through messaging that acknowledges and normalizes the end of life, explains what will be happening to the patient, and provides this kinds of psychological and emotional support that can be very important. Now, of course, patients who have a short prognosis, who are deemed by virtue of an evaluation of performance status and specific symptoms and signs to be dying soon, eventually reach a point at which they appear to be transitioning to a period when death is imminent. Uh, some, this has been called the active dying phase or transitioning, and it's very important for those who are attempting to implement a palliative plan of care to recognize when the patient is actively dying. It brings with it a whole series of new clinical imperatives and issues that, that must be addressed and about which I'll be talking in a few seconds. So when patients with life-limiting disease either have an acute complication that brings on a rapid decline with death imminent, or the patient has a slow and steady decline through a period when prognosis is obviously changing and death is likely to be soon, there reaches a point at which the patient is viewed as being actively dying and death is going to happen in a matter of hours. How do we recognize when this is happening? Well, empirically, there has been some effort to identify symptoms and signs associated with this phenomenon. Just this year, uh, in a large group of patients with cancer, a prospective study of inpatients who died evaluated 52 signs and noted that eight were highly specific uh, with dying within three days. These eight signs included non-reactive pupils, decreased response to verbal stimuli, decreased response to visual stimuli, an inability to close the eyelids, drooping of the nasolabial folds, hyperextension of the neck, grunting, and upper gastrointestinal bleeding. These are the kinds of events that were they to occur and the clinicians uh, were aware of the statistical association between these events and death very soon. They may mark a time when the plan of care again needs to be changed with the recognition that the patient will be dying within hours or just a couple of days. There are other clinical observations that suggest that there may be clinical predictors that are very familiar to some of you and that are commonly used. And it's useful just to go through these uh, from the perspective of, of how a clinician can identify this period of time and potentially um, uh, communicate that. The first is change in responsiveness. The patient who experiences a declining response to voice and contact uh, is one who might have a very short prognosis. 
Sometimes the patient is sleep-like. Sometimes the eyes are open and they appear to be vigilant. And sometimes there are episodes of agitation. There may be changes in muscle activity as the patient transitions to imminent dying. There may be decreased muscle tone or myoclonic jerks. Often urinary function changes. The patient may have uh, episodic urinary incontinence until finally there's declining urinary output. There may be changes in breathing. Sometimes the breathing is shallow and rapid. Sometimes it's slowed. And sometimes the patient will experience uh, very specific, de defined abnormalities in breathing, such as chain stokes respiration, which is a rhythmic increasing and then decreasing rhythm of breathing associated with interposed apneic periods. Those apneic periods might become more frequent and more prolonged as the patient's prognosis continues to shorten. Sometimes the patient has upper airway congestion and it results in a noisy type of respiration which ultimately becomes loud enough so that it's characterized as death rattle. Death rattle can be upsetting to family members even if the patient's entirely unaware and, and it warrants treatment if it is. Sometimes changes in skin can be a very important clue that death is going to occur very soon. The extremities may become cool, mottled, or cyanotic. Sometimes there is increased sweating of the body and head. Sometimes the skin of the face and the body takes on an abnormal appearance. It may be mildly cyanotic, slightly bluish. It may be flushed or pale. And sometimes there's a yellowish tinge to the patient who is imminently dying. If vital signs are being taken, they ultimately become abnormal. Blood pressure may be low. Pulse may be increased. Temperature may be either increased or decreased as death approaches. And as I mentioned before, respirations are also uh, unpredictable. They may be increased, shallow and rapid, or slower. When death is soon, when it's perceived that the patient is in a phase of active dying, there's a series of clinical imperatives. And management of this period in the patient's life and helping, the manage, helping in the management of the family's needs is really a best practice in specialist palliative care. Care of the imminently dying was labeled one of the eight domains identified by the National Consensus Project for Best Practices in Palliative Care, which was picked up in the national framework by the National Quality Forum. So those who are specialists in palliative care or hope to be specialists in palliative care care need to have a set of competencies that specifically relate to the assessment and management of patients at this time of life, when death is perceived to be occurring in the next hours or day. And the competencies that are required are very broad. Uh, they include special competencies in communication, multidimensional assessment, management of diverse sources of distress for the patient or the family. These sources of distress may be physical, they may be related to psychiatric disorder or be psychosocial, they may be spiritual, existential, or religious. Whatever the source of distress or concern that one can still perceive in the patient, if this is possible, or commonly occurs in families undergoing this experience, those, are, those sources of distress uh, deserve a critical assessment and, a, and, a, and, and to be addressed through a modification of the plan of care as part of a best practice in specialist palliative care. And all of this work done by the specialist has to be informed by cultural sensitivity, a working knowledge of 
clinical or bedside bioethics, and an understanding of system-level resources and mandates. This all together forms a set of competencies that I think to some very real extent defines our subspecialty. So let's talk first about the competencies that may exist in the realm of effective communication. When death is soon, it's important to recognize that the communication strategy with the family in particular may change. As before, it's very important that each member of the interdisciplinary team have a working knowledge of the medical facts of the case. It's important that the messaging about the medical situation of the patient is consistent across team members and also helps the primary team, the oncologist or neurologist, explain what's going on with the patient. This is very important to families and confusion within the team or inconsistencies between the team and the primary treatment uh, team can be a great source of distress. And that's only going to be eliminated if each member of the interdisciplinary team, to the extent that's within their scope of practice, has an understanding of the medical facts of the case and can communicate about them uh, in a consistent fashion. It's very important to be aware of the language, the cultural issues, and the extent of acculturation of the family at this time of life. It's important to be aware of the educational level of the family members and sometimes the patient, and also the extent to which there's health literacy. A patient's family that has high health literacy may be one in which communications can be more fact-based, more an explanation of the medical condition, and that may be reassuring to patients, patients' families. On the other hand, a family with low health literacy may be threatened by communications that focus on that, that, those domains. And finally, it's important to recognize that some families and, and patients do have comorbid psychiatric disorders that complicate the effort to communicate at this time of life. And psychiatric and psychosocial barriers to communication appear to be relatively common and need to be assessed in order to be managed. Communication in the moment is where the rubber meets the road for the palliative care specialist. And there are some some uh, guidelines that might be helpful when thinking about the kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of imperatives for in-the-moment uh, communication. First, it's important to be aware of nonverbal communication. Uh, this may involve sitting with the family for some period of time or bringing family members together into one room in order to see the nonverbal communication that exists between them. The clinicians involved in the care of the patient at this time of life need to be prepared to return to the family or be available otherwise so that short conversations can happen. Families at this time of life are vulnerable and stressed and they may not hear many of the messages that are, are conveyed or are thought to be conveyed by clinicians. It's important that clinicians approach with some confidence the willingness to have difficult discussions, to open the door to these discussions so that the family members can ask hard questions. It's important to be honest about what's going on, but to avoid categorical or definitive statements when there is reasonable uncertainty. If there is some uncertainty about whether or not a patient will survive a day or two or three, it's best to express that because the, the patient's family told that the patient is going to die tonight, for example, uh, may have some distress or may be disturbed in the planning that had, the plans that they have. Uh, by um, that, that communication, if inaccurate. 
It's important that clinicians be willing to express feelings and to state the obvious. Uh, if the situation is, is very bad, if the situation is, is uh, a tragic one, but it's also important at all times to retain professional boundaries. This is very difficult for some clinicians to do uh, at this time, but it's really it really represents uh, an important skill set to be able to retain some professional distance while sharing the distress that you may have while, uh, while seeing a patient with whom you've had a relationship uh, finally die or, or be dying in the near uh, future. It's a, it's a very challenging thing to do, but important that these professional boundaries are retained so that the patients can continue to gain from you what they need from, from professional staff. The families will express many concerns, and, and these are, of course, appropriate, and they should be normalized to the extent possible. For example, if a family observes the death rattle, they may feel that the patient is choking. And it, it's often important to explain that the patient lacks any evidence of consciousness. There appears to be no distress. And in any case, we have medications and other techniques that will reduce that and will take that course of action. Or if the patient begins to chain Stokes respire and the patient's family sees apneic episodes, it may induce a high level of anxiety, but it's important to normalize the, the breathing pattern of that patient. Chain Stokes respiration is normal for many patients as they transition toward death, and the, and the patient's family shouldn't be panicked when they see it. And finally, there is our concept of empathic listening. Uh, another skill that it's important for specialists in palliative medicine to acquire. Empathic listening includes being able to identify the emotional tones of a patient's family and to, ex and to uh, make process statements that, uh, that, that validate those uh, uh, emotions. It's important to show compassion while communicating, to be able to express feelings while retaining that, those professional boundaries, and to show some insight into the suffering of the family. Empathic listening typically involves more listening than speaking. The goal is to explore with the family or others the questions that they have, to understand what they know and what is uh, making them uncertain or fearful, and to ask questions that might explore their emotional reactions, uh, not to shy away from from the potential to have the family become distressed or tearful. That may be normal. And being able to acknowledge the, the suffering they're having and allow them to have that cry is very important. Empathic listening also, also involves repeating back to the patient's family statements that are made so that, so that you can be clear that you understand what they've said. This, this constellation of skills under this general rubric, rubric of empathic listening uh, is, is easier or more difficult to do depending on so many different elements, the cultural elements, psychological, psychosocial elements. But the bottom line is that we should all, every member of the team, should approach the communication at the end of life with a potentially distressed family with the ability to, to engage uh, in this type of communication, a communication that acknowledges, explores, normalizes, and allows the patients to express emo uh, patient's family to express emotion. Now, when death is very soon, there are other key issues that arise. Some of these issues relate to the multidimensional assessment. For example, it's very important to reassess decision making if a change has occurred in the patient's decisional capacity 
or in the if a change has occurred in the person who is the identified decision maker. When decisional capacity is lost, uh, there are a series of questions that the palliative care specialist has to ask. Are there oral or written advanced directives? Are there clearly expressed prior uh, statements, prior preferences for care? Is there an agent who has been selected by the patient? And if so, is the agent available? Has the agent been informed by the patient about values and preferences for care? And is the able, agent able to act with substituted judgment, meaning acting as the patient would act? And if that's not possible because the agent doesn't know what the patient would have wanted, can the agent act with the best interest of the patient in mind? If there is no agent, then we try to identify a surrogate decision maker. And in some states, of course, this is prescribed by law, in others it's not. Uh, the bottom line is that we identify a surrogate, and we want that surrogate to be available. We would like that surrogate to be informed, and we'd also like to be able to be reassured that the surrogate can act with either substituted judgment or in the best interest of the patient. Sometimes this assessment has to be reevaluated. This, this assessment that had been done in the past needs to be done again when the situation has changed and the patient is going to die soon. And that may involve trying to understand the relationships between family members uh, to a more a nuanced degree than had been done before. The bottom line here is that when the patient is no longer able to speak for himself or herself, we have to have, if it's possible, an agent or a surrogate to help with decision making at the end of life. Another important reassessment that needs to be done when this, uh, when this period of time occurs is to reassess the goals of care. This may involve asking the question whether medical treatments are now needed or should medical treatments actually be withdrawn. In all cases, the benefits and burdens of the existing treatments, the medications that are being used or the devices that are being used, need to be considered individually. For treatments that are not considered life-sustaining, we have a lack of evidence in guiding practice, and most of what's done now is done based on a clinical benefit-to-burden analysis. Just as an illustration of how helpful data can be, I'll share with you a study that was just published several weeks ago, which was a large randomized multicenter trial evaluating the discontinuation of statins in patients who are at the end of life. The study showed that the discontinuation of statins was not associated with a change in mortality, that those who discontinued the statins had some evidence of better quality of life, and that those who discontinued statins, not surprisingly, had a reduced cost of care. So now we have evidence that as patients appear to be having a shorter and shorter prognosis, uh, continuing statin therapy is not supported by the medical literature. We don't have the same evidence for other medications, uh, and yet the same type of analysis, a benefit-to-burden uh, analysis, uh, should be done for each of these treatments in an effort to decide whether to discontinue them or not. Now, of course, some treatments are considered generally life-sustaining treatments with pressors or ventilator support. Now, if they can be discontinued because of a medical contraindication, then they're no different than any other therapy. If the patient is receiving uh, artificial nutrition and hydration but is developing anasarca and pulmonary edema, those sources of fluids should be stopped on medical grounds. That's not an ethical situation. That's a medical decision. On the other hand, discontinuation of life-sustaining therapy because of perceived futility 
is a much more challenging issue that, that really involves um, some careful consideration of both medical and ethical uh, issues. Again, a benefit to burden analysis needs to be undertaken. In many cases, this is framed by the laws and regulations of the individual states. It's important to ask who is requesting that this, uh, that this potential life-sustaining therapy is being eliminated. Who's consenting for it? What is futility with respect to the treatment? And what is the burden of the treatment for the patient at that time of life? And of course, how do cultural and religious expectations and values influence the decision to even discuss withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy? It's a very complex area, and again, one that is in that should be viewed as a, as a best practice for specialist palliative care. Another key assessment issue when patients are really dying relates to the venue of care. We tend to have a value uh, that the patient should die, should be allowed to die at home if that's where the patient wanted to die and the family wanted to do that as well. But sometimes decisions are made to bring patients into an inpatient environment and they're very appropriate decisions, even if the plans had been made otherwise. For example, is there a need for a more aggressive symptom control intervention that would be difficult to accomplish at home? If there are appropriate disease-modifying therapies that are being given even at this very end of life, can they be given at home or can they not? Of course, can the patients, can we, can we um, follow the patient's expressed wishes? If the patient had a clearly expressed wish to die at home, we should do everything we can to, uh, to allow that to happen. Is the family able to cope? Now, of course, if the patient is a hospice patient and one can implement continuous care, uh, we may be able to allow patients and, uh, to die at home with families whose coping is less good than would otherwise be the case. But not all, all patients, obviously, are gonna have the opportunity to access that type of aggressive in-home in specialist care. And in some cases, admitting the patient to an inpatient facility is the only option we have in order to rescue the family. Now, it's also very important that the patient who appears to be transitioning and dying soon be evaluated for symptom distress. And, and the assumption should always be that the patient who has any evidence at all of reactivity or consciousness has the capability to suffer from uncontrolled symptoms. And symptoms must be addressed if the patient is able to experience them. Now the common symptoms at this phase appear to be pain, breathlessness, but there also may be anxiety, dry mouth, uh, noisy respirations, as I mentioned before, edema, a variety of symptoms and disorders that one or in combination can produce distress. If the patient has these problems, the palliative plan of care should include an assessment to determine whether or not treatment needs to be altered in order to reduce distress from them. One of the important considerations when death is soon is the occurrence of delirium. Now if delirium occurs and the patient dies during the phase of the delirium, retrospectively we call it terminal delirium. In real time, however, it's often difficult to know unless the patient appears to be dying very soon, whether or not a delirium may be a transitory phenomenon that could be potentially lessened uh, or even stopped, or is the patient uh, encephalopathic with a likelihood that that will be continued until the patient dies. So delirium, when it occurs, when prognosis is very short, 
deserves an, a critical evaluation, both in terms of the phenomenology and the potential to treat it so that its distressing components are mitigated, but also in terms of the factors that may be driving it to determine whether or not there's potential for reversal. So to do this, it's important for us to understand what delirium is. It's an acute disorder of consciousness, attention, and cognition. It can be hyperactive, associated with agitation or involuntary movements. It may be hypoactive, in which the patient appears to be sleeping, or may alternate between hyperactivity and hypoactivity. When a patient has a hypoactive delirium, it's important to distinguish that from somnolence or coma. And that's going to require a bedside assessment by a clinician who is able to evaluate these uh, phenomenologies. The symptoms of delirium, the symptoms that suggest that a patient who may be lying there quietly is actually better characterized as having a delirium than having, than having a light coma, includes restlessness, any expression of anxiety or jitteriness, a patient who has sleep cycles but the sleep cycles are abnormal, the patient may have prolonged insomnia, or may sleep for prolonged periods of time, or may have sleep reversal, where they're up at night and, and sleeping during the day. The patient may have fluctuating concentration or attention, or the patient may have hallucinations or illusions that may be elicited by carefully um, asking the patient. If the patient is viewed as having a delirium, as I said before, even when prognosis is short, it's worthwhile looking at the potential medical causes for this in an effort to determine whether any of these causes might be easily reversed and thereby lessen the syndrome in the hope of reducing its distressing qualities. One of the issues that has been a little controversial in our field is the use of hydration when uh, prognosis is very short. Some practitioners strongly feel that offering patients hydration in order to reduce the incidence or the severity of a delirium toward the end of life is a reasonable thing to do. And others feel that it's best to treat the symptoms of the delirium in order to allow the patient to escape the distress and then move into a phase of active dying. This is really a decision that's made case by case and based on your own experience. Sometimes there are environmental interventions that can be undertaken that might reduce distress. Putting a patient, for example, near an open window removing objects from the room that may produce fear or having a person in the room. Obviously, the use of pharmacological interventions is a, is a, a, a very important component of the treatment of delirium, and the mainstay drugs are neuroleptics and sedative hypnotics for agitation. The combined use of a drug like haloperidol and a drug like lorazepam is very common in specialist palliative care, specifically to address uh, this problem of terminal delirium. Sometimes the patient uh, who is viewed as dying soon develops symptoms that are refractory to treatment. And as all of you uh, listening today know, uh, one of the ways that this has been addressed is through uh, a medical treatment which is now generally called palliative sedation. And it's very important, in my view, for specialists in palliative care to have a very, uh, a very broad and deep understanding of palliative sedation in terms of its rationale, in terms of the, uh, the ethical uh, management of palliative sedation and its medical management. Palliative sedation might be defined as a medical treatment by which a patient who is believed to be near the end of life 
is given a drug with the goal of producing sedation sufficient to relieve suffering. The goal is to produce sedation so that the patient's suffering is overtly relieved. Now palliative sedation among specialists in palliative care is a widely accepted medical therapy when physical symptoms are refractory to conventional therapy near the end of life. Now that's a packed statement. Note that I didn't say all symptoms because in our field, for example, there's quite some controversy about the use of palliative sedation to manage existential distress or profound psychological distress. There's broad agreement that the management of agitated delirium and breathlessness is appropriately uh, undertaken with palliative sedation in selected patients, but much less agreement that it's appropriate to do that when suffering can be linked to existential factors. It's also clear that this statement highlights the issue of refractory to conventional treatments. That's a very challenging statement in, itself, in and of itself. Conventional treatment requires sometimes specialist level knowledge of how to treat symptoms like pain, for example, or like breathlessness. Has the patient who develops difficult to control pain had access to the types of interventions that a specialist in pain medicine might consider using? Should we consider patients refractory to pain treatment only if they haven't had access to those treatments? These are not easy issues. And my own view is that patients who have physical symptoms that are distressing in the context of a short life expectancy deserve a very careful assessment, often with the help of consultants, in order to feel comfortable that the intervention of palliative sedation might be selected specifically when physical symptoms are clearly refractory to conventional treatment. When considering um, palliative sedation, it's also important to understand the ethical framework for analyzing it and implementing it. This ethical framework in the literature commonly talks about the issue of proportionality, meaning to say sedation to the extent of relieving suffering with the, the goal of relieving suffering and not to shorten life. And, when, and in, in, uh, in line with that concept, uh, the, the assessment of whether or not the sedation should be light versus deep, whether it should be lifted after a defined period of time in order to allow more communication between the patient and family, all of those issues fall under this very broad ethical framework of thinking about proportionality in treatment. The principle of double effects is somewhat controversial, but uh, for palliative care specialists, it tends to take on a, a quality of a useful guidance. Uh, if one can feel comfortable that the intervention is intended to relieve suffering and not to shorten life, then one can, in essence, live with the potential adverse outcome of, 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 a, of a potential for shortening life because the intent is to relieve suffering and the need to, re to relieve, relieve suffering at that time uh, takes on the most prominent import. Now, one of the important things to recognize is that when the skill set, the competencies in palliative sedation the team awareness and help is there so that palliative sedation can be performed competently and safely. It can be done in the home. And this is now in the literature. It's usually done in the context of having a, a, a clinician continuously present in the home. Continuous care uh, when patients are admitted to hospice might be a, a very useful um, a means to provide uh, continuous palliative sedation until death at home. Being able to talk about palliative sedation to other members of the treatment team, 
and to the family is very important. Palliative sedation should be viewed as a bona fide medical treatment adopted and accepted by professional organizations and having guidelines developed on an international basis after years of experience and, and analysis. And we should all be able to talk about palliative sedation and make it clear that we're talking about a medical treatment intended to relieve suffering that can be accomplished in a sophisticated way such that uh, the issues involved in terms of how deep the sedation, how prolonged the sedation, whether there be any other type of endpoint, whether hydration is continued or not continued during sedation, those are the kinds of discussions that can be had openly with patients' families, sometimes with patients themselves, because of the framework surrounding palliative sedation as a bona fide medical therapy to manage a challenging uh, medical condition. So what I've tried to talk to you today about is uh, the, uh, the, the situation in which patients with life-limiting illness are approaching death and the clinical imperatives that arise for specialists in palliative care. The care of the imminently dying patient should be viewed as a best practice in specialist palliative care and, and this relates to every discipline. It requires skills in recognizing and reacting to the, the, the processes that are occurring that alert us that the patient may be dying soon, in days or a week or so, or actively dying in hours to a day or so. And we have to develop broad clinical competencies to communicate to the patient and family as these events occur, to perform a multidimensional assessment focused on very uh, specific issues such as those related to goal setting, decision making, communication, and symptom management. And we have to be able to implement interventions that together manage diverse sources of patient and family distress. All of this requires professionalism, confidence, and being able to work in a supportive team. For clinicians who are doing specialist palliative care who are brought into a situation which is one of the most difficult ones for patients and families, and are privileged to be able to help them at this time of life, the ability to convey to the family and to the patient a sense of confident professionalism is one of the most important things we can do. We shouldn't be afraid of admitting what we don't know, asking for help, but always being able to communicate well, openly, compassionately, honestly, and being able to address problems as they occur in a, in a way that is proactive, if possible, and efficient, and likely to work. These are the kinds of skills we can bring to this tough situation and have a very positive impact. Thank you for your attention. I'm going to turn now, and uh, if there are any questions from those who are listening, I'd be happy to answer. So the first question is a, is a difficult question and a very good one. It, it uh, asks the following, are there circumstances in which a patient's wishes in a living will are clear, but clinicians are, are, should properly not follow those preferences? And the answer is that uh, there certainly are those circumstances. One of the most challenging issues related to expressed prior preferences um, relates to the ability to feel comfortable that the patient could foresee the situation in which he or she now finds himself and from a medical perspective, the situation that was perceived is the situation that's now happening in the present. If a patient has a very clear advanced directive and expresses something that, that we have the potential to follow, the bias, I think we would all agree, should be to try to follow it. But if that is going to produce 
more distress for the patient or more distress for the family. And if we're not comfortable that the patient foresaw the situation that now exists, then we can be in a very uh, good situation. We can feel ethically comfortable uh, that we are not following the patient's advanced directive because it doesn't apply uh, or at this point in time the anticipated benefits are far outweighed by uh, new harms. Um, I can tell you that if you have access to an ethics committee, that's exactly the kind of scenario that I would usually recommend getting an ethics committee involved. Those people who serve on the ethics committee, their job is to do a due diligence with a fresh pair of eyes, collect the information, talk to the people involved, and then make a recommendation based on uh, an assessment. And for those clinicians who are emotionally involved with what's going on, that, con those kind, of, that kind of fresh look can be very helpful. Another question uh, relates to uh, the level of hydration. Can the level of hydration impact effectiveness of the medications used to relieve suffering? One of the challenges that we have in pharmacotherapy at the end of life is that the pharmacokinetics and also the pharmacodynamics of drugs can change as the patient is, is rapidly changing physiologically. For example, the patient who becomes volume overloaded has a change in the volume of distribution of the drugs and the, and the plasma concentration of drugs might, might lessen. Patients who are relatively dehydrated will have decreased renal clearance of some drugs and the levels in the plasma may rise even if the doses are not changing. At the end of life, all of these physiological changes are happening and, and it's difficult to know. In fact, it's really impossible to know. Uh, uh, which way this is going to go, particularly because it's also complicated by drug-drug interactions that might be unpredictable. So the only thing that we can do in pharmacotherapy at the end of life is to follow guidelines that understand that the patient is very medically frail, start with low dose, engage in titration of, of medications as rapidly as, as can be safely done, and realize that even when patients achieve what appears to be a stable response to a drug, the next change physiologically, the, the a change in the, uh, uh, in the creatinine clearance resulting from uh, low blood volume might then change the plasma concentrations of the drugs that have been stable and the patient will need adjustment of those medications. This is a very common phenomenon and can only be addressed by good assessment really deciding on what the targets of the treatment are and evaluating those targets sequentially over time and then making changes in the drugs in a rational way. Okay then, well this will be the end of, uh, of the webinar on care of the imminently dying. I want to thank you all for attending. I want to let you know that the next webinar will be on the management of anorexia cachexia and this will be given by Dr. Sami Ahmed. Uh, the date for that will be April 23rd at 1230. Uh, thank you very much for attending.